Father, we just thank you that you've been with us this morning, that your spirit is moving. And I just pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. Lord, I'm not the most qualified to share the message that you've given me today, but I know that you give your word, and that's what matters, Lord. Your word is our qualification and our authority. And so I'll stand on that today and trust, Lord, that you will speak to our body here today. We thank you, Lord, for your headship and your love for us. We just ask that we would be faithful in this area of marriage today. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's message is titled, Marriage, subtitled, Proclamation of the Gospel. And I think sometimes we lose sight of what marriage is because we forget what it points to. So today, that's my, my main focus, is finding and seeing why marriage is so important to the Lord. Why it's such a big deal in the church. We're families. That doesn't, I'm not excluding single people at all. Because this message can be applied to everyone that is here. Um, so I want to start with an illustration of a couple. They were, they were named John and Betty Stan. They were missionaries to China. They met at Moody Bible Institute. They didn't get married there because their sole focus as single men and women was to glorify God in their lives, to serve Him with their whole hearts. So they both individually went to China with China Inland Mission, which was Hudson Taylor's organization. And when they got there, two years later, they got married there. But they were both, just in singleness, in their marriage, they were focused on Christ as the source of everything in their life. He was everything. So much so that in 1934, when they were, they just had a child. She was three months old. They were condemned to death, the two of them. It says that they laid their daughter later hidden in their home with some money. And this is what it said about them. Never was that little one more precious than when they looked there last on her baby sweetness. As they were roughly summoned the next morning and led out to die. Painfully, sorry I can't see. Painfully bound with ropes, their hands behind them, stripped of their outer garments, and John barefooted, he had given Betty his socks to wear. They passed down the street where he was known to many. While the Reds shouted their ridicule and called the people to come and see the execution, like their master, they were led up a little hill outside the town. There, in a clump of pine trees, the communists harangued the unwilling onlookers to terror-stricken to utter protests, but no one broke the ranks. 
The doctor of the place, a Christian, he expressed the feelings of many when he fell on his knees and pleaded for the life of his friends. Angrily repulsed by the Reds, he still persisted until he was dragged away as a prisoner to suffer death when it appeared that he too was a follower of Christ. John had turned to the leader of the band and asked mercy for this man. When he was sharply ordered to kneel, and the look of joy on his face afterwards told of the unseen presence with them as his spirit was released. Betty was seen to quiver, but only for a moment. Bound as she was, she fell on her knees beside him. A quick command, the flash of a sword, which mercifully she did not see, and they were reunited. This couple put Christ first in everything. I'm not saying we all have to go to China and have our heads cut off. That's not the point of this illustration. The point of this illustration is that their sole focus was to glorify God. It, may, it cost them their lives, and they never got to see that three-month-old grow up. That daughter did, was saved by Christians, and she lived to tell. But how centrally focused is Christ in our marriage? That's the question that I hope to answer today. And I, I'm not, I cried when I read this story last night, and as you can tell, I couldn't hold it back. But I, it just, for me, this is what Christianity is about. Our marriage, our singleness should be about Christ. It's not about us. It's not about us being selfish, because that's what the world, that's why divorce is such a big issue in our world today. I want to read, if you'll look with me in Matthew chapter 19. It says, Matthew 19, verse 4 and following. Or, sorry, verse not, uh, 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been that way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, or a better word, fornication, and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So this message, I need to clarify a few assumptions. Uh, 
I'm assuming you remember what Brother John has taught on marriage and that I agree with him wholeheartedly. I also assume that marriage is God's doing. So he determines what marriage is. It is not defined by men. It is not defined by any human effort. He designed it. And proofs of this we can see in Genesis 1, if you want to turn there, 1, 27 and 28, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. It was his design. He created them male and female. There's no other option. That's, it's his doing. It's his design. If you look with me in Genesis chapter 2, because this is really important. Matthew, when he's talking, when Jesus is replying, he's saying, the problem that you have with divorce is coming from your lack of understanding of how it is supposed to be. You've forgotten the design. You've forgotten how God created man. And so in verse 22, uh, Genesis 2.22, it says, right here, it says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to him. So God designed marriage. Again, this is his doing. And he gave away the first bride. Think about that. Adam was out there. And here comes God with his bride. The first bride being brought to Adam. Adam wasn't looking around trying to find a bride. God brought her to him. I think that's a good picture for single people who are looking for God's trust in him. Trust him to bring that person. He did it here is it really that hard for him to do it today? Because I, I promise you, when he brings the right one, you won't regret it. That's a side note, by the way. The third thing under God's doing is he spoke this design into existence. And if you look at Genesis 2.24, it says, For this reason... A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. It's interesting, and if you, you might need to keep your hands in Genesis 2 and Matthew 19. I apologize, I didn't say that. Um, if you look back at Matthew 19, Jesus says there, he says, In 4 and 5, he says, Have you not read that it was created, that he, God, created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said? So he's saying, God created them male and female, and God said. So this, this part where it says, for this reason, that's not just Moses speaking, who wrote Genesis, but it's God speaking, and Moses is recording it. Exactly. So he, Jesus is saying, for this reason, this is what God is saying. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is an assumption that I'm making before we get to the real meat of what we're talking about today. God spoke the design into existence. It wasn't, God didn't create them separate and then say, well, let's see what happens. No, He brought them together. It was His plan from the beginning. That's why marriage must be in conformity to who God said it is and not what man decides they want to define marriage as. And under this God, God's doing, we also have a fourth thing. God performs the one flesh union. If you look at Matthew 19, 6, if you look back over there, it says... So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The pastor does not certify your marriage. God does. The state does not certify your marriage. God does. That's what he's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. There's no other option. God designed marriage and He creates the union that we cannot. That's of Him. And second, under this, these assumptions, one is that it was God's doing, and second, marriage is for God's glory. If you'll turn to Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Again, it, I think it's so interesting. Genesis chapter 2 is quoted so many times in the New Testament when it refers to marriage. Why? Because it's God's design. It's God's doing. Marriage is not a choice that we walk away from. God has put us together. It says in 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I know it sounds like an echo, but apparently this text in Genesis is so important for our marriage. God didn't just put it there so we say, well, that's how it was before the fall. No, this is how it should be for the Christian. The curse of the law has been taken upon Christ. For us. The 32, it says, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Our marriage, our love, our covenant keeping love is a picture to the world of Jesus and the church. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew. I believe. This is how we proclaim the gospel. When our spouse is not perfect, we don't walk away. We forgive. We forbear, and we'll see this later. There are many things that we do, but walking away is not an option. If you're single and you want to be married, you should listen, because it's 
I promise you, in my case, Megan has to forbear with me a lot. It's not so much the other way around. I mean, except when there's the fridge, I think, would be the only thing that irritates me sometimes. But it's annoying. It's not, <laughs> I'm not going to walk out over the fridge, you know. <laughs> it's not dirtiness, just, just a pet peeve. Um, but Megan has many reasons to want to walk out on me. But God in his grace has given me a wife who loves me despite my imperfections. Christ obtained the church by his blood and formed a new covenant with her, an unbreakable marriage. Marriage exists to display God. It is patterned after God's covenant relationship to his redeemed people. The church, redeemed people of the church, sorry. Its ultimate purpose is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and His church on display. That's why God constantly talks about issues in marriage. It's not that marriage is all important. What's important is what it's proclaiming. Does that make sense? What are we proclaiming with our marriage? A quote from John Piper in a really good book. I would re recommend all but one chapter. Um, very highly. He says, Therefore, till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live, is a sacred covenant promise. The same kind Jesus made with his bride when he died for her. What makes divorce and remarriage so horrific in God's eyes is not merely that it involves covenant breaking to the spouse, but it, that it involves misrepresenting Christ and his covenant. Christ will never leave his wife ever. He will never leave or forsake us. That's why. I know growing up I always wonder why is it such a big deal other than the broken family and the, the hardship on the kids. This is why our marriage proclaims who Christ is as a husband. And for the wife, what the church is. We are, it's not an exact representation, okay? Because I am far from Christ. God, I'm, by His grace, I'm saved. But I am not Christ. I'm just a picture, just like Megan is a picture of the church. And this is why sex outside of marriage covenant is constantly condemned throughout the Bible. It was against the design of God. God meant it to be only in the design of marriage, in the design of the union that only comes through His design. When we circumnavigate God's design of one flesh union, which is more than just physical, we are experiencing a shell, just a shell. And that's why you see all these, there's movies out there about people that just go around, play around with sex all the time. And they're not happy. Why? 
Because sex is not meant to fulfill you. It's not meant to be that way. God designed this world. He created marriage. And sex is a part of that. Is a gift of it. But you don't get the full meaning of oneness if you're not in that covenant love relationship. Because it's not just love. You can fall out of love and remain married. You know why? Because you made a covenant. Because God, you and your wife, me and Megan, made a covenant before God. And no matter what circumstances may come, I will never leave her. And I know that she'll never leave me because she made a covenant and I know that her word is her bond. Because she desires, as I do, to proclaim Christ in the church. So, it's interesting if we turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, at the end of this, there's a a phrase that I know when I was single, I was just like, that's a weird, why is it there? Um, But we have to think about it. In verse 25, Genesis 2, 25, it says, after all this, why does he say this? Why does he say, and the man and woman were both naked and were not ashamed? Is it because they're perfect? Is it because... They're the, you know, just physically perfect and everything. There's no problem. I don't think so, actually. Because it's interesting, after the fall, they immediately wanted to cover up. Do you think their bodies changed that suddenly? No. You know what happened, I I believe... that the shame and nakedness of nakedness arose from two sources. One, mainly because of the collapse of that foundation of covenant love, which was their relationship with God. That's what was so important. So the first point was that Eve, in this case, is no longer reliable Adam is, looks at Eve and realizes that now she's all about herself. She's put, made herself central and vice versa. When we sin against God, we're making ourselves the central focus. Sorry. The central focus in our lives. And that's why shame comes in. We feel vulnerable. It's just like when we sin in marriage. We don't want to tell our wives or husbands because we're afraid that they'll condemn us. We're afraid that they'll use it against us later. That doesn't mean that that's true with our wives or husbands. But that's our feeling. 
We're afraid that our covenant is not enough, that our sin will separate us from that love. The clothes that God brought and gave them after the fall was God's way of saying, you aren't what you were. They weren't supposed to draw attention, oh, how rich you are, or to what was underneath of them. They're meant to point to the fact that we were selfish and not yet like Christ as we should be. When we become like Christ, self is the last thing we care about. It's all about serving for the husbands, serving your wife, leading her closer to Christ. For the wives, it's all about sacrificing and submitting to your husband. It's a sacrificial relationship from both sides. It's not a one-way relationship. And that is why it is so important that we see marriage as God designed it. And we return to that. So how do we as husbands and wives in the broken world we live in proclaim the gospel in our marriage? And my first point in this is the last point you would think of, the last point that I would typically think of is we must have a healthy realization of the wrath of God. I know that's the last thing you would think of in a marriage. You need to think about the wrath of God. Because we can't proclaim the gospel in our marriage Without it, we can't proclaim the gospel without an understanding of God's wrath. If you'll turn to Colossians 2, under this point, Colossians 2, 13. And I'll tell you, a lot of this came from the, the book I was telling you, telling you about. I couldn't do much better, so a lot of it is in a book called... Um, what is it, honey? This Momentary Marriage is the name of the book. But remember, I don't agree with one chapter. You'll know when you get there. <laughs> I think it's 14. Um, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This truth, this astonishing truth we read here is important. God took the record of all your sins that made you a debtor to wrath. Remember, sins are offenses against God that bring down His wrath. And instead of holding them up in front of you, 
and using them as a warrant to send you to hell, God put them in the palm of his son's hand and drove a spike through them into the cross. That's what wrath is about. We have sinned against God. And you're thinking, I don't see how this relates to marriage. Just wait for it. We're going to get there. If we don't understand who we were, what we were to God, we were His enemies individually, enemies of God. And He, in His wrath and justice, had to punish our sin. If we fail to see the great weight of our sin in the impending wrath of God, we will not fulfill God's design for our marriage. Because right here we have it. God requires two things of us. We have to pay a price for our sins, and we must live a perfect life. How many of you have done both of those? No one. Christ has. We have no ability to fulfill either of these things in ourselves. This is why Christ had to die. We were hopelessly lost and unable to do anything for ourselves. So Christ bore our punishment and gave us a robe of righteousness. Do you kind of see where we're going? Do you see what is happening now? We are to live the same way in our marriage. This is how we live with one another. Because we realize who we were and what Christ did for us, we reciprocate it to our wives and husbands. If you just turn over to chapter 3, verse 12 and 13 of Colossians, just turn the page there. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy, beloved, and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. My question is, could you ever out forgive or bear with your husband or wife in relation to Christ? In comparison to Christ, could you forgive him or her more than he has forgiven you? Not me. I know who I was. That's why it's a realization we have to see the wrath of God. We have to see who we were without him. So that when we're looking at our husband or wife, especially when you're both born again, and say, he did the same thing for her. He did the same thing for him. I can't look at Megan and say, oh, I can't believe she does that. That drives me crazy. I have to look at her and say, God saved her, and I promise to love her no matter what. Do we really look at our spouse and think, she 
or he is righteous in God's sight? Do we really see that robe of righteousness on our husband or wife? I know it's not always easy. Especially for Megan with me. She probably looks at me and says, I don't know what that robe is, but it doesn't look like righteousness to me. But it's there. If the person and work of Christ isn't your foundation for covenant-keeping love in your marriage, you will run out of forgiveness, grace, and mercy, and find yourself in a fight that no one will win. And that is absolutely true. And I, again, I do not feel qualified. I've only been married for three years. This is just what I believe God has given me. And maybe uh, someone who's been married much more can come up and correct some things. I'm sure there are some corrections that need to be done. But I trust that this is, this is God's Word. It's not, I'm not making up stuff from... I didn't read a 10 Steps to a Healthy Marriage. No. That, those books really don't really work because the key to a successful marriage is Christ. It's not steps that you take to try to appease the other spouse. Christ chose your husband and your wife. He or she is holy. Their position in Christ is holy. Remember up here in, in 12, verse 12. Chosen of God. She was chosen. He was chosen of God. Again, I'm, I'm not trying to exclude the single people. There is a point where I will talk to you specifically, but... You are chosen as well. He or she is holy. Again, verse, there in verse 12, we see that. Their position in Christ is holiness. I know you may not believe this, but your wife or husband is a saint. We've all heard the expression, well, my wife isn't a saint, or my, that, that, that phrase. Well, mine is because she was set apart, called into relationship with Christ. Does that mean she's, she's in heaven? No, she's right here. She's still in this world. But she's a saint. I mean, she's either a saint or she's an ain't. And I believe she's a saint despite her imperfections. And I know she might look at me and think sometimes, well, I don't know about the sainthood there, but... Um, she is, because it says so. The Bible says we are. Do I look at her that way all the time? No. And it's not her, it's my fault. I'm not, it's not my fault that I don't look at her that way. All right, sorry, did I say that backwards? It's my fault that I don't look at her that way, because I am forgetting what Christ said about her. I'm forgetting what the Bible says about her. That's my fault. Does that mean that there doesn't need to be changed? No. We'll get to that. He and she, your husband, your wife, are loved by the Lord too. It's hard when you're in the midst of a 
situation where you don't agree or you um, just can't come to terms with something that's going on, and you, all you want to do is think, I can't believe that God would love, love her <laughs> or love him. But he does. Romans 8, Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember that wrath we deserved. Christ came. He took our punishment. And now he is transforming us into his image. We are holy in his sight. Righteous, justified. But it's not, we need to take that realization, that identity, and turn it towards our husband or our wife. We need to realize if they're born again, they have the same identity. Our identity, this identity shouldn't be the basis of our God-glorifying marriage. When we realize who Christ is, what He's done for us, and what He's done for our wives or husbands, that will be our foundation. It's not in who I am of myself. It's what God has made me. I, this, our inward identity, as we see in 13.12, or uh, Colossians 3.12, Leads to the, so that's the first part where he's chosen, holy, beloved. Those things lead to outward actions. If we don't rejoice in that inward identity, we need to remind ourselves what it cost in our state before. That's again going back to wrath, what it cost Christ. This reflection in me and you should bring overwhelming awe and gratitude that compels us to live as we see in 12, the second half of 12 and 13 of chapter 3. What does it say there? It says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another. I know this is not specifically a marriage passage. So single people here, this is for you too. Do these things. And forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. How great has God forgiven you? Does it compare to what you may be holding against your friends if you're not married or in your marriage. Any things that your husband or wife has done that you have failed to forgive. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, God gives you Christ as the foundation of your marriage. Welcome one another, therefore, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Don't insist on your rights. Don't blame each other. Don't judge or condemn each other. Don't find fault with each other. But accept each other 
as you are and forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. That doesn't mean that there doesn't need to be change. I'm not ignoring that, okay? I'm, the focus at this point is forgiveness because that's the problem. Typically, we're unwilling to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. If you look at Colossians 3, we have three pairs here. An inward change that affects an outward change, an outward action. So if you look in verse 12, put on a heart of compassion. This word is actually translated in King James, if you have it, I think, bowels of mercy. That's an inward. When you have mercy, guess what happens? It produces kindness. That's the next thing. When you have that inward change, it produces kindness. And then the next thing, it says, humility. Is humility an inward or an outward expression, typically? It's something of the heart. It's inside. How do we express it? We express this in gentleness and patience. So when God gives you humility, He humbles you. You have patience and you're gentle. This goes for both men and women. Even though I think humility is possibly harder with men many times. Not necessarily though. So women don't be applauding just yet. I think Megan will I thought Megan would be amening a lot louder today, but so far she's kept it calm. Um and then the last pairs a little bit different, but we have here in verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And in the King James, I like it better, long-suffering produces patience and forgiveness. That ability there. If our roots aren't found in the inward conditions, then we can't produce the outward. God has to work in the heart to produce what He's bringing forth. We think when we get married, oh, it's going to be so easy to love my wife or husband. And it is many times. It's going to be so easy to be patient, to be kind and gentle, to bear with her or him. But then something happens and we're like, I didn't know that about him or her. Or I didn't realize I would have to bear with that or forgive that. When you marry a person, you don't know what you're going to be like in 30 years. I'm, I mean, I'm only a third of the way there. No, not even third. What is that, a tenth? <laughs> yeah. I can't even do math, see? <laughs> Our forefathers didn't craft wedding vows with their heads in the sand. Their eyes were wide open to reality. This is a quote from Piper. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, 
to love, honor, and cherish till death do us part. Therefore, I plight thee my troth. I know this is old phrase. I pledge you my faithfulness. You don't know what this person will be like in the future. It could be better than you ever dreamed or worse. Our hope is based on this. We are chosen, holy, and loved. God is for us, and all things will work for the good of those who love Him. It's when we forget that, that we fall into problems. I've got another illustration here. Megan really likes this one. Because it, it's very clear. It's good we're in, in a farming community, so most of you can, can relate to this. Picture your marriage as a grassy field. You enter it at the beginning full of hope and joy. You look out into the future and you see beautiful flowers and trees and rolling hills. And that beauty is what you see in each other. Your relationship is the field and the flowers and the rolling hills. But, before long, you begin to step in cow pies. Some, reason, some seasons of your marriage, they may seem to be everywhere. Late at night, they are especially prevalent. These are the sins and the flaws and the idiosyncrasies and weaknesses and annoying habits in you and your spouse. You try to forgive them and endure them with grace, but they have a way of dominating the relationship. It may not even be true, but sometimes it feels like it's all there is, cow pies. We have to believe here that the combination of Forbearance and forgiveness leads to the creation of a compost pile. That's where you shovel those cow pies. You both look at each other and simply admit there is a lot of cow pies. But you say to each other, you know there is more to this relationship than cow pies. Sometimes in our marriage it seems like that's all we've got. Our cow pies everywhere. And we are losing sight of that because we keep focusing on those cow, these cow pies. Let's throw them all into a compost pile where we have to. When we have to, we will go there and smell it and feel bad and deal with it the best we can. And then when we go, are going to walk away from that pile and set our eyes on the rest of the field, we will pick some favorite paths and hills that we know are not strewn with cow pies. And we will be thankful for the part of the field that is sweet. Our hands may be dirty and our backs may ache from all the shoveling, but one thing we know, we will not pitch our tent by the compost pile. We will only go there when we must. This is a gift of grace that we give each other. I know it's easy. I think it's probably easier for, 
for Megan because I feel so inadequate as a husband. But by God's grace, He is changing me and she probably sees more cow pies than she's willing to admit to me personally. But I feel like she's faithful to put those cow pies in the compost pile and walk away. Forgiveness is a huge part of our marriage. Because we're both imperfect. That doesn't mean that we can't change, though. Grace is important to marriage because it forgives, but it also brings change. Grace is not just the power to forgive. It is also the power to change. And this is a problem the church now, they preach grace as though it's something that you can just sit back and relax and receive and you don't have to do anything. But grace is also the power to change. Ephesians 5, chapter, sorry, Ephesians 5, verse 21 and following. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes nourishes. And cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, we've already read this, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So, in this passage, we see that we aren't to treat grace as just the power to forgive, because grace is, like I said already, twofold. It includes God's Gracious works which He has prepared for us to do and the change that He has empowered us to realize. This is not works-based religion. The works are to flow out. Like I said before, it flows out from what Christ has done for us. We remember His wrath. We remember His love. And we go out desiring to please Him and obey Him and And look to His Word. We want that relationship with Him. The church was meant to be in relationship with Christ, its head. 
Just as the husband and the wife were meant to be in that unity. It says here in verse... Sorry, I lost my point here. Verse 26 of chapter 5. That Christ, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. That He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so, husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. We nourish one another. We cherish one another. We aren't looking to Lord. So this is to husbands, so pay attention. Wives, you can just amen as much as you want. Um, We are not free to lord our role as husband over our wives. I want to look at myself. It says, I, I like this here. It says, stop and focus on your need to change and not on your spouse's need to change. Isn't that how it always is? I, I remember as a kid, like, you get in a fight with somebody, your mom's like, y'all need to stop. You're getting a spanking. But he started it. We're always looking to blame the other person for our own problems. But what God is saying is stop. Look at yourself as a husband. Why don't you see your wife as I see her? It might be something in you. I'm not saying the wife is perfect. Or the husband is perfect. What I'm saying is, if all we're focusing on is their problems and forgetting about our own that God is wanting to deal with us in, maybe impatience or pride, there are many, many things that marriage brings out that you didn't know you had. And then children add to that and you're like, it's multiplied. Like, how can someone this little control my life so badly? (laughs) In a bad sense. I love my daughters, but you all can relate to times when you're thinking, how can a little child like this bring that out of me? (laughs) Well, marriage is just a little bit part of that as well. Like, how can I love someone so much and this bring, have this attitude? What's wrong with me? That should be our, our thing. Like, What is it that God is trying to bring out through this situation? What is it in me that's the problem? That doesn't mean we we don't try to change one another. We we have a responsibility as the spiritual leaders. Again, this is to the husband specifically. We have a responsibility to lead our wives, to guide them. But it's not like a, a despot. We're not... Fidel Castro, we shouldn't be like that. Christ set an example for us. We are to treat them the way we desire to be treated. 
So when we correct, it should be in the same manner that we desire to be corrected. Some things to think about, some negative things for husbands to avoid. For us to avoid and, and seeing change in our own lives and in, in our wives and that grace that God gives to change. One point is, the first point is, we are not Christ. We are not Christ. We're just like Him. If you see verse 23 of chapter 5, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. We are not infinitely wise. We are not perfect like Christ. We have made mistakes. We have failed we are not Christ, but we are to be like Christ and to love and care and keep that covenant relationship intact by the power of Christ. It's Christ in us, not ourselves, that should draw our wives to us. Second, we should be calling our wives to conformity with Christ and not us. I know that's really hard. I'll give an example, and this is not to beat Megan down, but I am paranoid about being on time, and she's less paranoid about being on time. So, I realize, at one point I got really mad. I didn't say anything to her, thankfully because it would have been bad. Um, that would have been a very large cow pie. Um, <laughs> um, it probably would have been a compost pile right there. Um, but I realized, wait, yes, I want to be on time, but is this really that important? No, it's, yes, I want to be on time, because I want to be respectful for example, with church or whatever it is. But is it really conformity to Christ that I'm looking for in this, or do I want her to be like me? And I realized that was the problem. I wanted her to be like me and be ready to go at 30 minutes till church time so that we were here plenty of time. But that's not conformity to Christ. That's conformity to who I want her to be, what I want her to be. Verse 26 and 27 says, again, we've read that already. It says, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is what Christ is looking for in our husband, in our wife. Our desire, men, for our wives is to be measured by God's standard of holiness, not our personal preferences. Oh, she doesn't roll up the, the toothpaste tube. Oh, man, it's over. I, I, we've never fought about this one, but apparently a lot of couples have problems with toothpaste. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making it up. Um, but we choose to fight over personal preferences instead of what God's Word is about. As husbands, 
It's so much easier. I really want this to be this particular way. But is that conformity to Christ or to Caleb? In my case. So we, we can't, we're not Christ. We are calling our wives to conformity to Christ, not to us. And the third one is we are to die for our wives. I know that's super popular nowadays. The thought that a husband would lay down his life to sacrifice. I'm not saying physical Specifically, we should be willing to. We are to love our wife just like Christ loved the church. That's what it says in Hebrew or Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Did Christ spare anything in his love for your wife and for you? No. He didn't. He didn't. He gave everything. And I am guilty of not living this out all the time. I'm, I have to be, be honest. The last thing I want to do when I come home is do what my wife needs help with. What I want to do when I get home is sit on the couch and relax after working all day. But guess what? My wife, she doesn't get off of work until the kids go to bed, and then she's still cleaning the kitchen, doing other stuff. But I can come home and just sit on the couch. And she usually doesn't say anything. But I know that's not... Now I'm going to have to go home and uh, help clean dishes tonight. Um, (laughs) But... We are to lay our own lives down. We should be looking to meet our wives' needs, physical, spiritual, emotional. They shouldn't be looking everywhere else. They should be looking to you as you follow Christ. They should be looking to Christ individually. And God uses us as husbands to be that source for them. She shouldn't have to talk to all her friends to find out how to deal with the situation. She should feel free to ask us. And we should be pointing them to the Word. We should be pointing them to conformity of what Christ has called us to. Now for the wives. I know all the men are like, oh, finally. Let's move on to them. So what, what can wives avoid How can wives spur on their husbands to change through the grace of God? Through that power of grace? I think one is that's hard for many women, and I'm not saying this for all, is to be careful not to nag in attempts to change your husband. And this... The conformity to Christ kind of falls under this. We need to remember that wives, as you are seeking to please God, that you are 
seeking to do so to His image and not to what you want your husband to be like. Exactly. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be seeking to please each other, but our main goal is to please God. Just like John and Betty Stam, they gave it all for Christ. Even in death, remember John was, gave his socks to his wife to walk out to be killed. But they did it together. They did it together. Because they were seeking Christ. Because they knew Christ had to be the foundation of their marriage. Wives, if you want to see change in your husband, sacrificial love is the primary means to see that. This goes the same for husbands. You want to see your wife or husband change? Lay yourself down for them. If you're not if your husband or wife isn't born again, I promise you, they're going to think it's real strange if you start sacrificially loving. Despite the way they react, despite the circumstances, despite everything that's going on, if you show love, that covenant-keeping love, God will use that to convict them, to make them see who God has made you. And you'll have an example for your husband or your wife. For me, I pray that my example is not one of, oh, Caleb's perfect and he doesn't. No, (laughs) I'm not there. But God is changing me and I'm thankful. Sometimes I don't like it, but sometimes my wife has to rebuke me in kind, gentle ways. But I know that she loves me because she's always seeking to do things for me that I don't deserve. Piper had this to say, and we'll end here soon. Now when the husband is called the head of the wife, and it goes on to say, as Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians 5.23, something of the divine splendor is reflected in our earthly relationships. In this reflection, we should recognize and honor The dignity that is here ascribed to the man lies not in any capacities or qualities of his work, but in the office conferred to him by his marriage. The wife should see her husband clothed in in this dignity, but for him it is a supreme responsibility. I feel that responsibility every day with my wife and my kids It should drive us, husbands, men, to the Word. If you're single and you're a man, get in the Word. Know what you believe. Because you don't know when that bride may come that God has for you. Or if you decided, well, I'm not going to get married. You need to know the Word. You'll be expected to lead. And women who aren't married... Know the word so you find the right man and you don't get deceived. I have seen so many people, women, men, walk away from the Lord because they didn't choose based on God's 
recommendation or command. They thought, well, he seems pretty nice. He's, or she's such and such. She says all the right things. He says all the right things. If we don't know the word, we won't know. We'll be easily deceived and drawn away. So if you're single and you're thinking, oh, I really need to, to be in a marriage. Don't rush. Get in the Word. Know your Savior. He's the foundation. If Christ is not the foundation of your life, your marriage will suffer, man or woman. If the, what Christ has done for you, His work, His person is not the most important thing in your life, your marriage and your life will suffer. He is worthy of everything. I like this to end. Remember, marriage is so important because it's God's design. God created it to give glory to Him, to proclaim your marriage. Our marriage should proclaim to Christ or to the world. What Christ has done for His church, His bride. If we are not proclaiming Christ in our marriage, then something must change. We need to look and say, God, I have a hard time forgiving. I have a hard time with patience. I have a hard time showing that covenant-keeping love with my wife. All of us can remember those early days of marriage where there were butterflies in your stomach and just everything was so great. And I'm not downplaying that because you still have them. But eventually, life catches up and you start realizing, oh, Happily ever after takes work. Happily ever after requires, as Christians, we realize a relationship with Christ on both parties. If I love my wife like Christ loved the church, she will want to be my wife until she dies. In her heart of hearts. I know she wants to already, but it's going to be hard for her to resist if I love her like Christ loved me and vice versa. If we love our spouse like Christ loved us, they will not walk away the same. They will be changed. We will be leading men, our wives, closer to Christ. And wives, you will be helping your husbands grow closer to Christ. If Christ is our source, then our marriage will succeed. Our marriage should be pointing to Christ and the church. And when their change needs to happen, we have grace, the power to do that. So to end, I really like this, another quote from John Piper's book, and it says, and I think this, this sums up what I believe 
about marriage? Therefore, if Christ ever abandons and discards his church, then a man may divorce his wife. And if the blood-bought church under the new covenant ever ceases to be the bride of Christ, then a wife may legitimately divorce her husband. But as long as Christ keeps his covenant with the church, and as long as the church, by the omnipotent grace of God, remains the chosen people of Christ, then the very meaning of marriage will include what God has joined, only God can separate. If you want your marriage to succeed, if you want to glorify God in the way that He meant in your marriage, put Him first and realize He knows the way to succeed. It's not in me. It's not in Megan in our marriage. It's in Christ. As long as I remember what Christ has done for me and do the same to Megan, we will succeed. We will not fall apart. Our union is made and created in God. It is not a man's definition or a man's idea. God designed. God created. He created us and He called us to forgive like Christ and to lead husbands like Christ and to submit and love like Christ and the church women. That's all I have and I pray that we'll be encouraged in our marriage, encouraged to keep Christ the center, to make His Word an important source of strength in our lives. Let's pray, and I don't know if Bobby and John are going to come back up here and sing. Or Father, we just thank You for the faithfulness that You have shown us, that You have not left us, You have not forsaken us, but You have chastened us and You have loved us despite who we were. You sent Your Son to die for us, to call us to a relationship with You. We thank You that You give us repentance, that You continue to call us to deeper surrender, we thank You that You give us forgiveness. That You give us the power to overcome sin. That Your Spirit can be in us and draw us to a greater and deeper walk with You. Lord, deal with us today and help us to live our lives, to live in our marriages with Christ as our foundation and our source. We thank You, Lord. For your word. We thank you for your grace. Just commit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.